Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Well, welcome, welcome to the show. This is the DL Link Show where we connect you through insights, information and illumination on 101.9 Hi FM. I'm Nikki Seberini. I am with you until one o'clock. And uh, I'm having a great day, and I hope that you are having one too. We know that there's going to be some load shedding. We see numbers rising. Um, we have the stresses of the year ahead of making up for what perhaps we lost last year. And how are you doing? How are you feeling? Did you wake up feeling okay? Did you wake up feeling heavy? Um, are you feeling burdened by everything or are you managing everything moment by moment? You know, these are the questions we ask every week. We bring you incredible guests um, to help you transcend these uh, these challenges that we, we seem to be given in life, all of us. Um, and, you know, we've been giving you some really inspiring guests over the last few weeks, people who have really, really faced huge challenges huge obstacles and hopefully inspiring you because while these may not be your stories, we as human beings are connected through our stories because it is through the listening of another person's story that we see something of ourselves within them and there's an incredible connection that happens, there's an incredible comforting that happens and most importantly the idea that we are all connected and not as alone and separate as we seem to think that we are. So today we have have another incredible guest for you. I have had the privilege of interviewing her before quite a few years ago, and I am delighted to have her back on the show. Now, this is a harrowing, harrowing story that Alison Boerter is going to be sharing with you. Um, I can take you back to 26 years when you read headlines and you heard a story about a woman who went through a brutal attack, a rape, stabbed, left for dead. Um, and uh, wow, Alison, still 26 years later, is sharing the story and inspiring people and giving them a sense of hope and that connecting with the, the hugeness, um, the larger than life, the spirit, the human spirit, that which we all have and sometimes we find difficult to access. So as I said, I am really, really thrilled to have Alison on the show. She's going to be sharing her story with you, how she overcame what she did. Um, and I hope that you get as much out of it as I have in the past. So Alison Boerta, welcome um, it's great to have you on the show today. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you for that lovely introduction. It's lovely to be here to chat with you. So, Alison, you know, 26 years later, we're talking um, uh, and you're going to be sharing the story. It was, as I said, so horrific at the time. And it's very, very difficult for people to hear this just because of what it brings out, obviously. And people are, there is so much fear at the moment. What's it like for you having to relive this every single time you have to share the story? Uh, well, thank you for thinking of me, but actually, I think it's harder. <laughs> well, I think it's harder, though, truly, for other people to imagine it, because they have the choice to to say, "Oh, it's too much. I can't handle it." Because I didn't have that choice, so it's 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 in a way, it's quite weird, and a lot of truth in that thing that God never gives you more than what you can handle. Because when you've had to handle it yourself, it is yours, and somehow. It is easier to bear. I don't know if that makes any mm. sense, but, but so when I share it, I also think though, I also think, and that this is something that I've analyzed for myself over the years, that my choosing to share the story has 
given it its due, if, if, in a way, if, if I can put it that way, because I've met many people who've, for instance, chosen not to talk about trauma that they've suffered and chosen to hide it or to keep it to themselves. And often then it demands attention in mm. nightmares, in relationships that they choose, in, I don't know, illnesses. And somehow I think the fact that I give it its due, it doesn't demand much negative from me anymore, if I can put it that way. So mm. I can remember it if I have to, but when I share it like I will today, it's not that I relive it or anything. It's more that I have a purpose in sharing it. You know, I, I get more excited about maybe it will help someone than, than I think about the actual happenings. If, if, yeah. Am I making sense? Absolutely. And, you know, I actually want to pause before we start with your story, because I think you've said two very profound things, and I think that our audience can get a lot out of it. And number one, the the processing, as you've said, um, that we, you know, and, and, and you're sharing really an intense story. And I think that what you've always tried to say to people is that this is my story and what happened to me is very, very hectic. But you have your story, you know, with the, the pain or the challenge or the loss or whatever it is that you're going through is as big. Um, and and so so you're saying that as, as painful as it is, the processing, the allowing um, oneself to go there and and feel the pain, it has been a huge part of your healing. Is that kind of what you've said? You know, in your sharing, there's been a lot of healing. Yeah, you've actually got a spot on in, in two things there. The one is that I don't like people comparing. I mean, I, I think find people just have a tendency to say to me, oh, well, of course, what happened to me is nothing like what happened to you, Alison, and then they'll tell me something about what happened to them. And it doesn't matter if it was being bullied at school, if it was nothing physical, if it was just some emotional trauma, it still is their trauma and and their processes, as you say, that they will deal with it. That's more where I hope I make a difference to people, oh, that no. people can not necessarily liken themselves to my trauma but more liken it to how do we deal when we find ourselves in situations that are not of our choosing? How do mm. we deal with like this coronavirus? Let's face it, we're all facing it. Um, how do we deal in situations where we are not in control of what's happening around us? Um, and so I suppose that's why I, I, I try in sharing my story. Hopefully they'll, that people will say, well, actually, if she can get through that, then I can get through my stuff. I can be okay, mm. you know. Mm. And I, I hear that and I just want to acknowledge that we really do appreciate what you are doing and what you've been doing for 26 years, speaking to people, writing books, you know, making the movie, getting the message out and especially now. So I, I do want to acknowledge that we do. We're very grateful for that. There's something else that kind of popped up uh, before we uh, break for ads, and that is something that you've said and also something that we can kind of think about, and that is – you know, when we listen to the story, how much harder it is for us, and yet you going through it, it wasn't that it was less hard. It's that while you're going through something, you you have the strength to go through it. So often we are, we live in the world of the what if, you know, and the fear, and many people can relate with the COVID, and that's that's sometimes far more painful than when you're actually going through it. I don't know if I've made myself clear with that, Alison. No, I, th- I think you're quite right because I've often said you don't know how much strength you have until you have no choice. Mm-hmm. So if you suddenly get inflicted with COVID, let's say, or with cancer or get raped and beaten up in a bush like I was, if I'd had to imagine it before, I would have told you there's no ways that I, knowing myself, would have survived that. Yeah. And yet at the, in the night then it happened, I had no choice but to survive or die. And I mm-hmm. chose, fortunately, to survive. And I think that's 
sometimes we don't know our strength until we have no choice but to rely on our strength. So in a way, in a way, not to wish badness on people, but in a way, it's our challenges that actually teach us so much more about what we're capable of. It's Mm. it's our challenges. Actually, we should actually, in a way, welcome them to our lives because they make our lives richer. And certainly I'm grateful for knowing what I'm capable of because of what happened to me. Yeah, that's incredible. And I think a very important message, not one we can get our heads around very easily. We're going to take a quick break, Alison. After the break, we're going to go back 26 years to December 1994. Please stay with us. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to the DL Link Show, where we connect you through insights, information, and illumination. I have Alison Boerter um, on the line today on the show. Um, she is going to be sharing a story of what happened 26 years ago. Um, she's written a book. She's uh, There's been a movie. And uh, we get today to experience it with Alison and all the, as Alison said, the lessons that, that have emerged and hopefully we will be able to gain um, from those. So, so Alison, let's go back to, to that fateful night in December 1994. Okay, well, I'll, I'll give you the abbreviated version because, as you say, it is a whole book, so it could take a long time. <laughs> And please interrupt me if you think I'm assuming that you and your listeners will know things that I don't. But basically, it was in PE. I was living in Port Elizabeth at the time. I was 27 years old. And as much as some listeners might think, oh, it was 27 years ago, kind of why are we rehashing it? I think it was just one of those could have happened anywhere, could have happened to anyone crimes that could have happened today. So that's why it is maybe still relevant. And and as you said, the lessons are always going to be relevant. Mm-hmm. So I was a carefree, never really care, thought anything would happen to me. So I was, I'll admit, careless with myself. I never knew um, at self-defense, I never locked my car doors, and I was just unfortunately at the wrong place at the wrong time. There were two guys, Franz Dutoy, came out later, Franz Dutoy and Tienz Kruger, that they actually had gone out that night looking for a girl to rape and kill. Why, we're not sure. They were involved in Satanism and stuff, but I was, as I say, just parked up, I pulled up that's outside my house at the wrong time. The door opened, a knife was put to my throat, and I was taken by them to the sort of bushy outskirts of PE around the bushy areas and the beach. Um, you know, at the time it was, I knew it was going to be bad, but I was thinking that if I fought them, I would make it worse. I now know that I should have fought them way back when I was in town just to get away. Um, but, but once I was out there, I thought, let me just comply. They both raped me without me fighting them. I thought, I don't want to make them angry. Um, I thought they would then leave me out there in the bush to walk back into town on my own because they hadn't threatened to kill me. They hadn't said anything about that. So it came without any warning. When the one guy, Franz, he just sort of, he, we were sitting in the front of the car. He just rolled over on over me, sat over me, put his hands to my throat, and he started to strangle me. And when I realized what he was doing, I, I mean, what do you do? I, I, I didn't know. I just said to him, please don't kill me. And I'll never forget, just as I passed out, he was looking right in my eyes, and all he said to me was, sorry. Hmm. And yeah, and and so I don't, I don't have any memory, fortunately, of what happened when I was unconscious. But because my story is now 26 years later, I can tell you what happened in that they they did when they came to the court case admit what they'd done. Because they were intending to kill me, they pulled me from the car, and talked about whether I was dead or not. And then they, they said, well, let's check. 
they then stabbed me. This is why I say it was fortunate I didn't really know this was happening, but they, they stabbed me in the stomach. It must have been like a frenzy, Nikki, because it was in excess of 36, 37 times, which is a lot. So it was some kind of manic frenzy that they went into. Um, then I moved. Apparently, it must have just been a reflex. My leg kind of twitched. And realizing that I was still alive, uh, they cut my throat then. And for some reason, the one guy actually testified later to having cut my throat 16 times. He seemed to have counted um, sure. Which is, I mean, a 16, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I even look at movies now and I see someone one time to the throat, that's the most vulnerable place. That's how you sure. die. Sure. So it is miraculous that I survived. I know that that's part of why my story hit the media as it did, but because the injuries were so bad. I mean, I literally, they, they were just, okay, not to, not to go ahead. They, they then got in my car believing I was dead. They got in my car and drove off and left me there. Um, I, unbeknownst to them, had actually woken up while they were cutting my throat, but I'd pretended to be dead. I'd pretended just to lie, lie there still. I realized what was happening sort of, but it was like being in a dream because I had no pain. Absolutely no pain. No whatsoever. pain. Not pain, no pain ever. In fact, that whole, wow. I mean, obviously when I woke up in hospital, but that whole night, and I just know that that was one of the miracles that saved my life because truly if I'd had the kind of pain I had the following day when I couldn't even blink without feeling pain, um, you know, I don't think I would have survived. So I had no pain, shock, adrenaline, miracle, whatever. And I I remember knowing I was about to die. I even took my finger and I wrote their names in the sand next to me because I wanted somehow for them to pay for what they'd done. I was thinking very logically. I was thinking very – I wasn't yes, panicked, which, yeah, which, which afterwards when speaking to the police, they said it's very rare. But I do think also it was because – when with them earlier on during the rape, I hadn't panicked then. So maybe if I'd been panicking and screaming and fighting them off then, I might have woken up in that same state of panic. But I was very calm, incredibly so. Just not calm because I thought I was going to make it. I was more, I know I'm going to die. I better write their names. I wrote, I love mom, <laughs> even in the sand. I wanted my mom to know that I thought of her then. Oh. And then I remember lying there thinking, I still, you know, love is an incredible thing when you have the love from someone and love for someone, because I remember thinking of my mother and thinking to myself, I don't want her to find me like this. It was more it was more for her sake than for my sake. I don't want her to go through losing a daughter like this. And I remember then thinking, let me at least try and crawl. Let me at least try and make it to the road. And I realized only when crawling that I had been stabbed in my tummy because I had no pain and I woke up only when they were cutting my throat. I only then, I know I'm speaking very matter of factly, by the way, listeners about this, but I'm not reliving it. Just know that. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I, when I pushed myself up onto my hands and knees, I realized then that I was stabbed quite very badly in my abdomen because everything started coming out and I, I won't go into detail, but it was shocking even to me at the time. And I didn't know how to crawl with everything. So I grabbed a shirt that they had fortunately thrown out of the car and landed near me when they'd thrown all my belongings out. And I was able to kind of bundle everything up in the shirt, hold it to my tummy with one hand and crawl then with the other, which was obviously difficult and awkward. And I was getting weaker and I probably made it five meters and then I collapsed. And that was when, again, thinking of my mom, I thought 
now she'll know. Now I've moved. I've moved now kind of five meters. Now she'll know that I was alive and I was struggling and what will I go through? You know those horrible things of not knowing what a, what a loved one's last moments were like. And mm-hmm. now she'll know that I was struggling. So now I've got no choice. I thought to myself, I have to keep going. Sure. I also, I also remember, and this has only come to me later, Nikki, and people must understand this, that I didn't realize all of these things then. Yeah. It's only in my telling, it's, and that's why telling stories and talking our stories, like you said in the beginning, is so vital, not only because others can learn from it, but also we hear our own story then being spoken. And so we learn things that we might not have if it was all just in our head. Do you know what I mean? Because right. sometimes right. in our head, kind of spiral into a thing. And when we speak and then we have a conversation perhaps with someone and they say, yes, but this, and then we sort of, so it's in my talking and sharing my story with people that I have learned what I was supposed to learn. Right. Um, so that's a huge blessing for me in, in that my helping others has helped me. But so a lot of these things I'm going to say to you now, I've only come to later. Yeah. Um, I realize now that again, my wonderful mom, I must give her credit. And right now today she's ill in bed. So, so love to mom. <laughs> oh, I think she's listening. lots of love to your mom. Yeah, lots of love. But, um, she brought me up. She was a single mom and she brought me up with a, intrinsic love and value for myself. I remember she said to me afterwards, you know, she could give me, she couldn't give me much and, and we weren't very wealthy or anything, but she, she knew she wanted to have my brother and I grow up with a value of ourselves as individuals, not because we were better than anyone else, but just because we were unique. And she always reminded me of that through my schooling, which I was never very, I mean, I didn't excel in school, certainly throughout the school years, um, I wasn't excellent in sport or excellent in academics or anything, but I always knew that she had my back and I always knew she'd be on the side supporting me if I was playing as reserve in the hockey match or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I remember coming back to that day, that, that, well, that night and knowing I wanted to give up. I, all of me, 99% of me wanted just to rest and go to sleep and it be over. And I knew actually if I did do that, it would be okay. Somehow there was a sense of, not judgment, but a, a, a sense of knowing it would be all right if I died, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. also knowing that I was worth fighting for, if I can put it that way. And that was in me from before. And this is why, you know, I, I share this particular lesson with people is to instill that value of themselves in our children, have it in ourselves, give them that example that you value yourself. Not that, you know, uh, that, um, Mommy thinks I'm special. They must know it so that when they are feeling, when they're alone and they're about to get in a car with a drunk driver, they're alone, they're about to have sex for the first time, they, they, whatever the things are that you want them, you, you wish you, you were there to tell them what to do, that your children will choose the right thing because they are worth choosing the right thing for. If, if, so are they, you getting they what I'm value saying? themselves enough. They're yes. worth it to make the right decisions, to say yes. no. And, Yes, and that's, that's in, in those kind of examples. But then, of course, when facing with huge traumas, now this is our children, us, it's all people. When we face these traumas and things that happen that are not of our choosing, what we do control is our value of ourselves. And if we've built and nurtured and just, you know, we are each unique. Let's face it. Each one of our billions of people who've lived on this planet, we are each completely unique from each other. Mm-hmm. And that makes us valuable. And if we just understand ourselves and know ourselves and love all the things that make us different. If we have that kind of essence in ourselves, when we're facing difficult times, 
we will fight through them because we'll be worth it. It's mm-hmm. we, we give up when we're not worth it, you know, when it wasn't worth fighting for. And so that's just, a, you know, yes, value other people, love other people, be good to other people, all of that. But loving ourselves is an incredibly powerful foundation to, to stand on and move through life on. And that's something that I, I, you know, urge parents and I certainly have highlighted for my, my own parenting that I want to give to my children as much as that's my mom gave to me. beautiful, Alison. It's I beautiful. You know, we, yeah, we stress, you know, achieving and doing and like a lot of doing. And here you're saying, you know, just turn, turn that focus inward and, and learn to appreciate and love the self. And ah, yeah, beautiful. I love that. Because answer. we don't know. You know, we can't prepare anyone, Nikki. We can't prepare ourselves, and we certainly, as parents, can't prepare our children for what they're going to face because none of us know what it's yeah. going to be. Um, and so all we can really do is give them the. We can stand on the side cheering, but they themselves have to be the one who knows that I'm going to do this. I'm going to believe in myself. I'm going to, you know, get through this. And mm-hmm. so the same that night, I thought of my mom. But she wasn't there. She wasn't there saying, get up and fight. I knew, though, inside myself. And literally, it's a gift she gave me that saved my life. I mean, quite literally. But it's also something that we can give our children that will hopefully help them and maybe save, maybe hopefully less figuratively or, liter- or more figuratively, less literally, save their lives in their what with whatever they face, you know. So that's just a little nugget for some parents. La- or, beautiful. Or- I love it, Alison. A beautiful nugget. Thank you for that. So we've got to go back to the bush. You must tell me when I'm a stop because I can ramble no, on. No, carry about this. on. Back to the bush. Okay, so back to the bush. Yeah. So here I am. I managed to stand up because I knew that crawling was too awkward. It was taking too long and I was getting weaker. So when I stood up there, and this is a horrible part of the story, I know, but I tell it just so that it does highlight how bad things were. They had cut my throat, as I said, 16 times, missing everything vital. It was miraculous that they missed jugular vein and all those things. But what they had cut was the muscle. On the side of our necks, we've got two muscles which basically held our heads up and help us move our heads. And without that muscle, when I stood up and, you know, my head came up, it didn't. I, I couldn't hold my head up. And so it flopped right back onto my back between my shoulder blades. Sure. And it was on a it, – it, it Oh, that's terrific. And I actually, I mean, one of the injuries I suffered from, still suffer from, is is the whiplash of that motion because it's not an, it shouldn't happen. You know, shouldn't. But again, it was coming back to we don't know what we're capable of until because you now can imagine it and thinking, oh my god. But I didn't even think it. It was only afterwards, when relaying the story, that I realised that that is what had happened. But I just did what needed to be done, which was in that moment, yeah. Pull it, yank it forward, hold it forward, hold everything else in with the other hand as I stumbled through the bush. I mean, I have no much, I have not much memory of that journey. I don't know how, much, how long it took. I remember falling many times. The, the feeling that I had, the two overwhelming feelings that I had at that time was frustration of not being able to keep upright and moving because I kept on falling and stumbling. And the other feeling was the fear that I wasn't going to make it because by that time, I wanted to live, mm-hmm. and so uh, the part, the, the feeling at the uh, that had been of, oh, I just want to give up and die, had got long gone. Now I had to do everything I could to live, but most of me knew I wasn't going to be able to. And uh, I, I, it was, I, I started realizing, I think, how badly injured I was. Um, it was, I went back afterwards to the scene to see. It was more 
it wasn't actually emotional. It was more just as a fact finding thing, just to see how far I had gone. Cause it was all in the dark and things. And it was about 80 meters that I had to stumble like this through. So it was fairly far in my condition with only 1% of me thinking just one more step, which is one more step. And I did make it. So I, as I said, I have no idea how long it took me, but I did make it to the road. It felt like the greatest, like a marathon that I'd won. But then mm. I fell across the white line in the middle thinking, well, I'm not going to lie on the side and have someone come past and miss me. That's for sure. I'm going to lie in the middle because if any car comes, I mean, it was one of those roads that cars don't go along. Oh. If anyone knows Port Elizabeth, it's around where Willow's camping ground is. So pretty much there are no cars that go along that kind of rugged beachy side, especially at that time, it was maybe by then one, two in the morning. So um, I fell in the road and I, I remember feeling so relieved that I'd made it and, and almost like if I die now, it's actually okay because I did what I'd set out to do in a way. Now yeah. I, I, have, I can't do anymore. That's what I felt. And that's in a way another lesson, if I can, that I, that I do highlight when I share my story with audiences and everything is the power of belief in ourselves. You know, I never had that before. I mean, I had the value of myself, yes, but I didn't, I never really had belief in myself. I, I, I never believed to push myself to actually do. I would sometimes think I had the potential, but never actually make myself do it. I would stay in the comfortable place. And I think many of us do in our lives until we have no choice when we then suddenly realize, oh, this is what I'm capable of. And my deep, passionate urging to anyone listening who has a desire to do anything, whatever it might be, is to just do it, to not wait, because we don't know if we're going to get second chances. I didn't know if I was going to live. You don't know if you're going to have a moment in your life where you suddenly realize what you should have been doing. It, it might be a moment when it's suddenly over and you have no second chance. And I just... I don't want to be one of those people who dies and realizes what I could or should have been doing because the only limit we have really on ourselves is the one that we put it on ourselves. Mm -hmm. So there are, you know, belief. I, I realized that night that if I could make that journey where 99% of me during that journey knew every time I fell, I, I just wanted to stay down. I didn't want to have to get up again. But there was that stubborn 1% that said, just another step, one more time, get up one more time, keep going, maybe you'll make it. So essentially, my little like realization to myself afterwards is that all I actually need is 1% of myself saying, do it. Just do it. 1% one, one of yourself just saying, do yeah. it. Sure, and Emerson. Hundred percent believing. We're going to take a break. I'm so sorry to interrupt you. We're going to no. take a quick ad break, but it, it's very powerful. Even if it's just the one percent pushing you, believing, and going beyond, you know, the self-limiting um, thoughts and beliefs that we have. Incredibly powerful. A quick break, Alison. Stay right where you are. We're coming back. High FM, one hundred and one point nine megahertz of life. Thank you for staying with us. This is the DL Link Show where we connect you through insights, information, and illumination. I have Alison Berta on the line. She's sharing her harrowing, harrowing story um, of December 1994 where she was brutally raped, um, assaulted, stabbed, and left for dead. And it is not easy. 
um, as we discussed right at the beginning to listen to the story, but that Alison is prepared to share the story and extract the lessons, the incredibly powerful lessons with us um, that we get to learn and gain from the story. We are so grateful for that. So, Alison, you were talking about having this power of belief that you really in the state that you went such a far way that you could finally push yourself just using 1% of your brain, you said at that time, because you were so focused on, you know, holding everything together um, and the, the power of belief as you made your way to the road. Yes, and Nikki, I mean, I think it's just, it's something I only realized afterwards, really. Um, but it is something that I like to share because it's something that hopefully people can identify with in their lives, that we don't have Absolutely. to believe and be, and be convinced that something's going to work or that we're going to be able to do something. Just do something sometimes just because 1% of yourself says, just try. So, yeah. yes, I survived that. Um, okay, here I was on the road now, lying there, not sure if anyone was going to come. Um, the... A horror part of the story is that a car actually came, stopped, looked at me, the lights were on, the engine was idling, I was waving my arm to see that they, you know, that, so that they could see that I was alive, but no one could ever, ever got out of that car. And to this day, I still don't know who was in that first car, because after oh watching goodness. me for a while, the car passed me and went on. And oh I was, goodness. at first, thought it might be them. So I was quite relieved when the car went off because I was thinking, what if it's them that come back to check on me? But once the car had gone, I thought, oh, no, what, what, that might have been my only chance. Um, but it wasn't. I mean, my story has the happy ending in that the, in the next car was my hero, uh, Tian Eilert. He was a young 20-year-old veterinary student, uh, which a lot of people find quite amusing because at the time some of the articles written said he was a medical student. So people actually thought, well, you know, a medical student, he knew what to do, but he was actually a veterinary student, first year veterinary. <laughs> but he had, he just actually more than knowledge, which he did have some of, certainly. He was just calm. He kept me calm. He kept his friends telling them what to do. I mean, it was in 1994. There were no cell phones. Mm -hmm. One of them had a, a cell phone, but they had to drive to get signal to phone for the ambulance. So it took a while. Um, the ambulance eventually got to us and they got me to the hospital. Um, miraculously, that's why I say I know the Lord meant me to live that night because there was a doctor on call who was actually specialized in thoracic surgery, which is surgery to the throat. And the, so he was able to repair the, the injuries. Still, I must be honest, even though they repaired me and, and I lived through the surgery, they weren't sure for a few weeks after whether I would live or die because of the risk of my throat closing up. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, maybe the biggest miracle of all is in my healing because not only did I survive, but I've healed remarkably well. I mean, I was out of hospital after a few weeks. I had a lot of after surgery and, and uh, having to go back to hospital, but my healing has been to the point that I don't suffer now apart from headaches and scarring and small things. I mean, in no way do I suffer in huge way from the injuries that I sustained that night. So my healing has been massive the court case they were caught um the two guys because because i lived they were very cavalier about their their they left my car they didn't try and wipe away fingerprints they didn't try and wipe away anything they thought they were going to get away with it they actually thought they would go and find another girl to rape and kill and throw her off a bridge and go on the, a rampage towards Cape Town. Sort of, they were going to throw her off the bridge to Jeffrey's Bay. They were going to go. It was some mad oh, spree that they could go. So, I, you know, for many reasons, I've often said, obviously the biggest one that I have life now, but 
I'm so glad I lived because they weren't able to do any more. They weren't able to choose another victim because I was able to identify them. They were out on bail. The two of them had raped a girl two weeks before me. They had been arrested and let out on 50 rand bail. Can you believe? That's it. Uh, that's, that's, 50 that is rand that told, don't do it again and come back in two weeks time. So I must say, I do, I hope it's still adhered to, but my case, I believe, Legally was also precedent in some uh, changing of legislation that um, bail laws had to increase, you know, the bail law restrictions had to increase for rape and violent crimes. Because rape is a violent crime. That's, I think, what people don't realize often is that as much as sometimes it might be, and I hate using this term, but only rape, where there's no other violence involved. The rape itself is a, a, a crime of domination. And mm-hmm. so eventually, for most rapists, that's not enough. And so then violence, other violence, you know, will, 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 will continue, will, will grow. And that's my case was a perfect example of that. So anyway, just to bring everyone up to date with how it happened back in 94, they were arrested. Our court case didn't have to wait too long. We were, it was less than a year before the trial actually happened and they were sent to jail for multiple life sentences on the other case before mine and mine. Um, but for me personally, it was, it, it was, it was cathartic to go through the trial, but also quite scary when it was over because then suddenly I had to face the fact that life was going to go on. And I didn't, yeah. you know, when the trial was still there to deal with, the trial was still kind of, it was involved with this big thing that had happened to me. I could still do something every day. Suddenly the trial was over. People went on with their lives and I was like, now what? And that's actually when I sort of actively felt a depression setting in, which mm. was quite shocking to me because I'm not a naturally depressive person. I was handling everything quite well. Um, it was actually one of the things though that the psychiatrist who had dealt with me through the trial predicted for me saying that I was probably handling it too well it was going to still hit me you, and in a way now looking it, back yeah. yeah looking back I'm glad I'm glad you know I think we can only feel true joy when we felt true pain we can only feel full contentment when we felt despair we you know I, th- I think that the the downside of the depression and the feeling completely lost and where's my life going was necessary in a way for me to rise again, if I can put it. I mean, I know that sounds very poetic, but that's kind of where it came from because I remember sitting at home one day and I was very, uh, I was being very damaging to myself. I can, I can admit it now. I was choosing to make the wrong choice when people would phone to invite me out and shame. My friends never gave up on me, but I just said, no, not interested, not coming, not going to that bride. Don't come and visit me. Don't. So I was shutting myself off. And I remember sitting down one day after the umpteenth phone call and I just said no to a Brian. I sat down and I said to myself, why did I say this to myself? Because no one was going to do it. Everyone was so kind and so careful around me. But I said to myself, why did you fight so hard to live, Alison? You know, that night you fought so hard through everything against you to live and yet you're living your life like this. Mm-hmm. Is this what you fought? And it was something that no one else, like I said, would have dared because it's harsh to ask yourself that when you, you know, at the time I was, I had every right to feel this way. And do you know what I've been through? And all the things that we normally have, you know, we, we go through a difficult time and then we almost feel that we deserve to feel, um, sorry for ourselves. We deserve to feel the because we've suffered. Of course. And 
And I do think it's necessary, but for a time, Nikki. I, I, that's, that's, I think, what I got for myself is okay. that it has a time because it's not powerful. It's not empowering. It's not, it wasn't helping me. And it certainly wasn't, uh, it wasn't, uh, what's the word, but it, it wasn't giving any uh, credit to the fight that I'd, that I'd made and lived through that night. And I think that was when I kind of slowly made myself decide that I was going to make different choices. It wasn't easy. It was not easy. It was hard to say yes to the next call that came for a bri or whatever it was. It was hard to start socializing again. I didn't want to go. Sometimes I'd go just for an hour and then come home again. But it made me feel at least that I was trying to get. And that's slowly how I kind of got back to living a normal life. And I think what people also often want to ask me, and I'm just answering one of the questions that I'm probably asked most often is, are you over what happened to you? I don't so, Alison, we're, we're yeah. going to take a very quick break, and then we've probably Jesus, got about sorry. a minute after the break. So st- we've time has flown. You, you're such an amazing storyteller. Quick break. We'll be right okay. back. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. The DL Link Show on 101.9 High FM. I have Alison Buerta on the line. Alison, we have one minute left. And, you know, it's such an in, – what a story you've shared, so many nuggets, so many gems that you've shared with us. One thing, just one minute, for those people who are listening and who are feeling overwhelmed by what's happening, highly anxious or depressed, feeling hopeless, it's too much to bear, from someone who's had that experience – and really we have a minute to go – what would you like to share with them? Oh, a minute is difficult, but I think in the end, like I've said already, is that when you don't get to choose the situation that you're in, you do get to choose how you handle the situation. So whether you're going to love yourself enough to fight through it, whether you're going to believe in yourself that 1%, whether you're going to just make choices that are good for yourself, know that you get to choose and control the choices you make. I think it's just one of those things that you're never going to get over the things that happen to you. They change us. Um, I've grown from what happened to me, but I've got to love the new me because of what happened to me. Well, Alison, I I wish we had another hour with you. As I said, so many lessons, such an extraordinary storyteller. Of course, you have the book, um, I Have Life, Alison's Journey. And also, I know that you can rent the movie. It's called Alison, um, and it's an incredible movie. Alison narrates a little bit, then there's the acting. Alison, Thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing the story. Um, and may you continue to share your wisdom and insights with the world. Um, we greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Nikki. And just if, if people want to get hold of me on Facebook, Alison Inspirational Speaker, they can also get the book or the movie through me from me there. You are a darling. Thank you so much. Alison Boerta here for you on the DL link on 101.9 High FM. So inspiring. I hope you got as much out of that as I did. Um, you know, we, we love to bring you stories from our cancer warriors. They can't always come onto the show. So sometimes we get little voice clips and here we have a voice clip from Bar- Bar- Barbara Garnett. Her husband passed away from cancer six years ago and she received support from the DL link and is still part of our DL link family. This is what Barbara has to say. Hi, Gabby and DL link. Um, just a message from Barbara Garnett to thank you for all your loyal support, especially during my husband's illness with cancer. He did pass away five years ago. Your Zoom with Linda on a Tuesday, Avi is my best lot. 
Thoughts of your Zooms have been amazing. Thanks once again. May you go from strength to strength. Lots of love, Barbara Garnett. Thank you so much, Barbara. And Barbara talking about the Zoom events, of course, the DLing putting a whole lot of events with the doors being closed, but the windows still being open. So I do encourage you to go to the website, dllink.co.za, and look at all of the upcoming events, things that are happening. Also, we haven't been able to podcast the last few shows. I'm hoping we're going to be podcasting soon. Um, so you can go to the Chai FM website, look at the podcasts, um, just put Thursday and uh, the podcast should come up i thank you so much for tuning in this thursday um you know we're all in this together and if we can just take little bits from other people's experiences and actively apply them and be very conscious of how we're thinking who we are in the moment we can all get through this together so from me nikki seberini until next week do take care bye-bye Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008.